I'm Joe Hall, CEO of Wolf Producers Australia, and today I'm talking to Andrew and Matt from Ad Watchers. Okay, very good. Andrew, we had um, the president of the farmers on last podcast, and now we've got the queen of sheep, uh, sheep and wool. So the, I think Matt was trying to do a pun there of the, of the, <laughs> of the, of the queen of Sheba. Yeah. Which, uh, I'm with you. I would call it the Queen of Sheba, which he just completely failed at. <laughs> but well, I am going to I am going to tell you a fact. Yeah, about the Queen of Sheba. Right. Uh, what well, she was really Scottish. Actually, so the, the, <laughs> queen, the Queen of the Sheba is also mm. referred to as the Queen of the South. Did you know that, Matt? No. And so, if you, I'm waiting to hear if this is some other joke or whether no, it's, it's, it's a historic no, fact. It's, it's a historic fact. So, okay. as you as you know, Matt, my football team is Queen of the South. Queen of the South, yeah. And uh, in the Scottish, let's uh, not mention what league they're in just now. Uh, but they are referred to as the the chant is that we are the only team in the Bible because it references <laughs> the Queen of the South. So, All right. Okay. Yeah. The Queen of the South survives again, and that's that's the that's so the football team is uh, not named after that, but but that's a, that was a very early Hoiboo tangent before Joe ho- Joe's even had a chance to, to talk. speak nearly. Right up. So Joe, uh, I've known you for a while. We've known you for a while, but what we got to do, you don't get any sort of, uh, uh, you don't get let off. So we do have to do a psychological test of you. And uh, so we're going to run our uh, AI algorithmic machine learning psychological test called the Sixth Sense, where we're going to give you six phrases or questions uh, or statements or words, and you give us the first thing that comes back to mind. People seem to think it's just a simple word association, but it's not. It is a it's very complex complex test. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just give us the first first thing that. Either a sentence or word that comes to mind. Matt, we'll start off. EID tags. Could be an opportunity if done correctly. This kerfuffle about this live export boat in WA. Debacle. Biosecurity levy. Uh, Ill-conceived. Haggis. Yuck. Uh-oh. Yeah. I guess I fail. <laughs> Crocs footwear. Oh, well, personal preference or choice, I, I guess. Oh, there you go. Well, she's redeemed herself, Andrew. Onshore processing of wool. Again, an opportunity um, waiting to be explored. That's it. There we go. Is that all six? Yeah, that's the six. Yeah, you know, keep track of it all. Yeah, you can tell Joe's a professional. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Synced and straight to the point. I would point out one thing though. Like, you're trying. We'll talk about uh, value adding to the wool industry later on in a bit more depth. And that's what we're all trying to do: is trying to get as much as possible for each sheep. By not supporting haggis, you're taking away a potential earning opportunity. Okay, I knew that that was a bad thing to say with the uh, current audience, but um, look, it was just my first reaction. I have tried it before. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah was just, that was my next question. Ask if, you, well, look, if you've tried it and it's not, not everyone likes offal, 
right? So you either like Offal or you don't. I think it's a bit of a Vegemite scenario, isn't it, too? Definitely. No, I, I tried the real real deal in, in Edinburgh. Uh, and um, not for me. Can I ask <laughs> when when you tried it? Did you try it at breakfast or dinner time? Oh, I think it was, I know it was at a pub um, in the afternoon, maybe. Okay. okay. Why does that, why is that a difference if you have a breakfast or dinner time? Because I don't like haggis either when it's just that morning breakfast fried haggis. I like it boiled. Okay. With, like, okay. A nice whisk, with a nice whiskey sauce. Yeah. And Terry's getting hungry already and it's only 9 a.m. Well, like, I mean, to Joe's credit, at least like we have had people that come on and have said yuck, and then you say, "Have you tried it?" And they said, "No." So if you've tried it and it's not for you, I think at least you've given it a crack. That's you know, everyone should at least try it, Andrew. Let a thousand blossoms bloom. That's it. <laughs> We're not going to waste any time on it. Well, we will, but uh, <laughs> right. Oh, let's let's jump straight into uh, EID tags. Yeah. So EID tags when Murray. Many more what came into the ag department, you know, Minister of Ag back in 2022. Uh, obviously, at that time, there was a lot of concern about foot and mouth disease, lumpy skin disease. So that kind of fast-tracked the conversation a little bit about EID tags, which has been bubbling around in the background for a couple of years. What's, what's the goal now with EID tags? So... You're correct. Uh, it was July 2022. It yep. wasn't just Minister Watt. It was the Ag Minister's meeting. Mm. July, um, again, correct, saying that that was at the time of heightened uh, focus on the, the risk of foot and mouth disease and also lumpy skin disease uh, in the broader context of um, ag biosecurity being detected in Indonesia. So, you know, there was... Um, not saying this was a knee-jerk decision, it was not because this has been spoken about for a long time, but that was, I guess, the lever to to roll this decision out. So it was agreed by the federal and, and state and territory ag ministers. Uh, that's that's fine. We, we supported that at the time. And I think if we step it back a little bit um, to 2020, there were safe meat EID reform recommendations um, that were presented to the National Biosecurity Committee. So those five recommendations included the establishment of a regulatory or statutory in entity, so an independent body, to manage the livestock traceability in Australia. That hasn't occurred. Uh, there was investment into a database capable of handling all FMD susceptible species, so we did hear from the, sorry, not hear, but in the October 2022 budget, um, the federal budget, there was about nearly 27 million uh, dedicated for that. So we can tick that one, I think, that that process is unfolding as, as we speak. It's called the Uplift Project. Um, then another of the recommendations was the mandating of electronic tags or individ individual um, identification. So, you know, that's that. 2020 mm. decision for sheep and goats. Uh, then there was the creation of equitable funding um, for not only the establishment of the system, but for ongoing maintenance of that system. I don't think that's happened. Um, and then the final recommendation was the um, a re regulatory impact statement to be done to assess these recommendations. That hasn't been done. So 
at this point in time, we've got two of those three recommendations happening. Um, we're now 2024 and um, we have decided as an organisation at Wool Producers to withdraw support because we do not feel that those five safe meat recommendations are being met. And at the time, it's it's worth noting that uh, I think people were saying things that there were, like there was unprecedented industry consensus on those five recommendations. So this was a lot of industry support for those five recommendations. Um, so here we are, we've made that the wool producers board have made the decision because underneath our support for mandatory electronic tags for sheep or the rollout of, of that process, Wool producers had three caveats. Um, one was the equitable cost sharing, which is not happening. Two was the creation of the database, which, as I said, we believe is happening because there has been adequate funding for that. Um, and the, four, the third one was national harmonisation. And why that is important is that um, we need to have, you know, consistent business rules for how this system is going to operate in each of the individual states and territories. So that's also not happening. Um, and why we had those caveats wasn't just for fun. It was because if we have those three caveats and, and they're met, that will ensure a, a robust traceability system. So, again, that's what led us to the decision at the start of this year. So, so in terms, um, can, can, you, sorry, can you just explain equitable funding, what you mean by that for the listeners? So what we're talking about there is equitable funding along the supply chain and also between industry and government. Um, obviously, there will be increased or there are increased costs with the implementation of electronic tags and its underpinning system, and, and that is throughout the supply chain. But as we know, any sector of the supply chain can pass those costs back to producers and we have nowhere to go. So. Yeah. There was some uh, shit, shit, shit rolls downhill generally. Pretty well, and uh, we are we are the start of the supply chain. I won't say say we're at the bottom of the supply chain, but we are the start. Um, so uh, there was some cost modelling done by Pricewaterhouse Coopers PwC, um, sort of the end of 2022-23. One of the scenarios, um came up with a figure of over just over $830 million over 10 years to roll this out. To date, we have $20.1 million from the federal government, which, you know, is welcome. It's a great start, but um, there needs to be a lot more. We know that some uh, states have committed funding for their state rollouts, and that that is different amongst the states. But again, welcome, but not enough. So... We don't believe we are hitting that equitable cost funding yet because, you know, this again is done in the name of biosecurity. That's why the Ag Minister's meeting, you know, determined that we should do that because of biosecurity risks. Um, have no problem with that whatsoever. But government also likes to say that biosecurity is everybody's responsibility. Um, and so if... Producers aren't the only beneficiary here or industry aren't. Everybody benefits out of good biosecurity. So if we're going to have this imposed on us, it's only fair that all stakeholders are contributing to this cost. Joe, you mentioned at the start of the outset that the EID tags, you saw what well, could be an opportunity, I think was the phrase, or if it was done correctly. Um, 
and and the biosecurity risks, to my understanding, the the level of risk hasn't changed, hasn't been reassessed in terms of what was that original increase to the risk factors. You know, when when FMD got into Indonesia and and Lappy Skin got into Indonesia, so so the risk is still there. Is there is there a risk that that as an industry we're now throwing out the good for pursuit of the perfect, or or is like is it not something we can work around, or, or is it just too much of a of a hurdle to get across in terms of trying to get something working here with the tags. So this is where cost does come into it. So, um, yes, the the threat, uh, the biosecurity threat to industry hasn't changed, and it is at the forefront of industry's priorities, and and we have to do everything we can to safeguard the industry. But what I think is forgotten about in this conversation is that we currently do have a traceability system in place on a mob basis, paper-based mob-based system. Is it perfect? Of course it's not. But given that we're now in this situation where um, we have the opportunity to get that national system in place and it's being squandered, we don't believe that the additional costs that producers particularly are going to to bear um, is commensurate with the increase in biosecurity because we can't see any net biosecurity gains if we don't have a national system. Mm. And when we say harmonised national system, we're taught we, the, the bar's pretty low. We're only talking about consistency and minimum standards rules for, for traceability. And it's really disappointing that, you know, the goodwill hasn't been shown amongst some stakeholders to even achieve that. Um, and, you know, without putting too fine of a point on it, clearly that's the jurisdiction's uh, responsibility. And, again, it's, you know, one of the um, oh, probably the biggest curse of federation is that um, each state can make their own rules as they see fit. And um, that's that's fine, that's in their rebit. But when we're trying to develop anything national, be it traceability or animal welfare standards or anything like that, um, it's really hard to achieve that. Uh, I think not impossible, but there has to be some type of goodwill shown and clearly that's not happening at the moment. That's that's one of the concerns, isn't it, as well, with this current rollout is that the states, the timeframes and the level of, of what each individual state is doing is different. Yeah, definitely. That's that's one of the issues that, that we can't even agree on timeframes. Um, going back to the ag ministers meeting um, or, or that forum, um, so they they made that decision in July twenty twenty two. Come September twenty twenty two, they reconvened and came out with, well, from what I can tell, an arbitrary arbitrary date of twenty twenty five. No yeah. one knew what that meant. Um, so that I think made jurisdiction scramble like I think some states interpreted that you know 2025 you had to have everything implemented others saw it as the start date some saw it as the start and finish date so um right off the bat there was um confusion inter yeah confusion that's a good way of so so in terms of if you pulling out support from it what what does that mean well, it's a clear signal that, you know, we we as, you know, the wool industry or representing wool growers don't have confidence in the process. Uh, we actually have a 
Sheep and Goat Traceability Task Force this Friday and uh, wool producers have been involved in, in all of these discussions for the last 19 months since that decision was made. I'll continue to attend that forum. Um, I think... But you, might, it, but you might get a cold shoulder. I'm Possibly, possibly. <laughs> Joe, Joe the, so wool, wool producers is the first to break ranks in terms of an organisation within that group. Um and and might might be the only one. We've yet to see if any others are going to um, change their mind as well. Uh, what kind of have you had much feedback from industry or from farmers about you know what they're thinking in, in regards to this action that wool producers have taken? Yeah, look, from in terms of other industry stakeholders, we only made this announcement what a, uh, a week ago, so mm. um, I'm certainly not aware of anybody that has publicly and at an organizational level be the state or or national that's come out and you know agreed with us as such um that's fine but i have had a lot of um producers contact me directly uh which is fairly rare in these roles i mean our our state farm organization members are the ones that generally interact with with growers directly mm. so you know, it's a pretty big issue when um, producers are seeking you out and then either sending you an email or find your phone number and then just ringing to con- to congratulate our stance. So being heartened by that. And, I mean, at the end of the day, we are trying to advocate for the rights of or you know, the interests of, of wool growers and, and we want to see what's best for them. Um, and that's... Yeah, so I don't know. As I said, if we can force parties back to the table to continue discussions, and then we have also been very clear in 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 this decision to say that if we're satisfied that uh, we can achieve harmonisation, and there's going to be more, um, you know, government money going into this system, we fully support it because we do acknowledge the importance of biosecurity, and we we want to see this be a great system. Um, yep. And I guess I guess that's the thing. It's like, yeah, it's all very well agreeing to a system and continuing to support it. But if it's going to end up being a rusty old banger of a system, then what's the point supporting it? It's no point supporting the Titanic. You're better off supporting, you know, something that's going to succeed in the longer term. And I think that's exactly. And that's the thing. We can see that there are issues. We can see that, you know, the end product at the current rate isn't going to be as good as what is needed and what the industry deserves either. So um it is we are just taking that stance and and we'll see what happens. Um, you know, as I said, I will turn up to the meeting on Friday and and you know hopefully facilitate that conversation and see what we can achieve from it. Because yes, it, it is it's it's a pretty rare opportunity where you have the mandate from industry and government to try and work towards something and we want to see it su- succeed. But I suppose like from from a point of view of of Wool Producer Street, I'm assuming that that's a board decision to to make that decision. Yes. Which your board is largely made up of SFO representatives. So we have six and a couple SFO, and a couple of independents. Yeah, yeah, six SFO directors, three um independently elected directors and and the chair is independent as well. Yeah. So I think that sort of that shows that obviously it has support of a lot of people in the industry because those people are representing. Well, at least the majority. You can't make that decision without a majority on the board. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, look, it is. And and that's something I think in terms of a policy sense, the reason 
um, we've made this decision is because, you know, back back when we decided to support electronic tags or the implementation of electronic tags, uh, we, we developed in our policy discussions those three caveats to ensure the, the robust traceability system was achieved. When we had the discussion the other week as a board, um, one of the, the the points that was raised was, well, you know, in, in 2020, whenever it was, whenever we developed our policy, that was deemed really important. And if those caveats aren't being met and we continue to support, well, what's the point of having policy? I mean, policy is a pretty, I think, largely misunderstood concept, uh, and I'll only speak for the wool industry here, Um Policy is, is really important, has the ability to shape, you know, industry priorities and, and things like that. It's not like the wool producers board wakes up one day and says, well, who can we annoy today? Um, it's not policy is not an opinion. It is Because that's not how, that's how generally we work the opposite. Matt and I wake up in the morning and say, hmm, who can we annoy today? <laughs> so it's, 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 so we, maybe we've got it the wrong way around, Matt. Mm, we might have. We might have. Maybe that's an analyst <laughs> I don't know, but policy doesn't work like that. <laughs> you mentioned about the the system being paper based, mob based. You know the existing system uh, for sheep and goats. Um, cattle moved to EID nationally ages ago, um, and there was there was some assessments done of in the event of a biosecurity breakout how quickly cattle could respond, which I think was a matter of days to be able to trace and track because of the EID um, and also the accuracy or the level of covers into the 90% areas, like 96% or 7%, I think, from memory, the, the, the actual modelling that was done. Within the sheep sector specifically with that mob base, um, I believe the accuracy or the coverage goes down to into the 70% and, and it takes a lot longer to track and trace, like maybe even a matter of weeks or a month or so. Is, so the current system's still not up to scratch, but you know, but the the way that the rollout is pro- proposed at the moment is also not suitable to wool producers. But we still, do you think we still need to? There still needs to be something, uh, you know, down the track, right, to to get towards an EID type system. Yeah, definitely, and and that's that's what I mean. We we know the current system needs improvement. That no one is disputing that. Um, and again, like. I sound repetitive, I can hear myself. It's just this is the opportunity to do this and we've got to get it right. I mean, what's the point in delivering, as you said, Andrew, like something that's not, that's a bit rusty or a bit broken. Um, So the goal is to have that national gold standard traceability system and, you know, that's what we're trying to do here is, um, I guess, agitate an outcome that that is in, you know. In the best interest. As my father always drilled into me constantly, like wrote, measure twice, cut once. But in terms of, I guess guess you're showing a sort of leadership into change. I'm just thinking back at these protesters in Europe, completely tangent. They've sort of worked together and they have changed, or in the process of changing quite a lot of EU commission policy because of their protests. Do you think if you had, like say, sheep producers... NFF or else, if they were supportive of the WPA position, wool producers' position, that it would might encourage the federal government to actually put more money into it to try and avoid this from being a sort of a bad program. 
Do you think it needs leadership, some other organisation to show that little bit more support so that it can actually be saying, well, here, United Industry, we want more money, we want, you know, cost sharing, we also want sort of, you know, the rules to be sort of harmonised across the country. Do you think that would, I guess, encourage Murray Watt to sort of sit up and take attention if there was more unity? Oh, look, um, there is strength in unity. And, I mean, we can't, Wool Producers as an organisation can't obviously influence other organisations to mm, join our crusade, but what I will say is that there are plenty of organisations, both like industry organisations, both at a, a state level and a national level that have pretty similar uh, policies to ours. Uh, so, you know, as, as I said, the, the when the board made this decision, it was in the, I guess, the realisation that the the current process is not meeting those caveats. We we know we're not going to get that outcome, so that's why we've taken that stand. And you know, I, I don't know if other industry organisations are going to review how this process is is matching up against their own policies, but that's up to them, obviously. Mm. And and of course, um, it would be great if there was more industry unity on this, uh, this and every other. I, issue. I, I was going to say just and every other topic out there. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, the other the other thing is where I was like we've we got a lot of messages all the time on social media and text messages and and whatnot, and I think we put a poll out on EID maybe four months ago or something, but hmm. there was a lot there was a lot of feedback from that, which was interesting. The feedback was really supportive of EID tags two years ago. Now not so. They sort of reversed their position, which people are well within their rights to do. I think it was largely a lot of it was around the fact that, you know, we've got a looming biosecurity tax, and we'll talk about that in a second, or, or levy, depending on your where you sit. And, and then you've got, you know, obviously land prices and sheep prices were pretty terrible for the last six months. Wool prices haven't been great for the last two years or so. And then you've got cost of, every other cost of production has gone up. So I think a lot of people were seeing this as well. I'm going to get a tax, a biosecurity tax, but then I'm also going to get a biosecurity tax stroke cost on my farm for introducing EID tags. And I think people forget that it's not just the cost of the tag itself, which is what let's call it 80 cents more, a dollar twenty more. It's the management process that's going to take the time. And that's where people need to be aware of it's it's a significant cost. So that's the feedback we've got is people just being like, I don't want to have to do this. It's just too much. And it's too much just now. So. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Um, sheep and wool growers are not unique. I, I, everybody is feeling the pinch at the moment, and at this point in time, it's all feeling a bit relentless uh, for all of those reasons mm. and more that you've just outlined. Uh, it, it's a lot, um, but I mean, again, if it was just about cost around electronic tags or the rollout of electronic tags. That's one thing. It is it's a significant issue, but it's it's the systems reform that we need as well. Um, but we are looking at, um, you know, say the average cost of a, a visual tag now is roughly 50 cents. Um, you know, you can get them a bit cheaper, a bit more expensive, but um, some states have, um, you know, provided that financial incentive that will lower the cost of, of tags for a while, but un- um, you know, the full retail cost of tags, you're looking at $2 a tag. Mm. Uh, so that is a significant increase on farm. And there's some, 
you know, again, frustrations within timeframes that have been discussed um, in, in this rollout process. One of the the issues that we're really concerned about, but it's not the reason why we've withdrawn our support, but it just is a really good example of how it um, practically will will affect producers in a financial sense is the the need for double tagging. Um, in 2027, most states have agreed to this timeline. So, sorry, step it back. 2025, anything born after the 1st of January will require an electronic tag to be applied. That's that's fine. That's reasonable. Year-on-year year phase in. Come 2027, the majority of, of states will be requiring all movements to have an electronic tag applied, even if they have that visual mob-based tag already in there and a lot of these older sheep are going to be going direct to works and we're not talking about not yeah. having um animals going direct to works that's a different conversation altogether but we are talking about literally applying a two dollar device for them to go and be processed and so, so for, for a, a two-hour journey yeah exactly and you know some of the discussions um that were had around this particular issue or the application of, of the electronic device to already tagged sheep. Um, oh, well, do we require this? Obviously, it was jurisdictional conversations. Um, do we require the removal of those visual tags? And where they landed was, no, you don't, because the device, the electronic device, only provides traceability once it's applied to the animal. And the visual tag may actually provide really important historical traceability data for that animal. So on mm -hmm. one hand, the jurisdictions are saying, well, the, the visual tag has to stay in there because we need to know prior to that electronic device being applied, but also you've got to have an electronic tag in for the final destination or final movement. Yeah. It seems like almost it should be a bit of a common sense approach to sort of for that sort of transition period of stick them on a truck here's an exemption it goes as long as it's going to the abattoir the meat works that's fine if it's going elsewhere i agree it probably should be tagged yeah i mean uh, with the visual tag you're still going to have an nvd you're still mm. gonna, still traceable um yeah. so i think that's probably uh the, the point about the practical application is sometimes that's missing in these conversations as well um which again is a frustration not the reason we've We've made this decision, though. I guess that's if it's if it's only if it only ends up being wool producers that that make this stand, and the rest of industry continue to go along with the existing rollout, and it's mandated, um, won't we get to EID with it, with or without wool producers anyway? So then, so then producers will have to follow what what's been mandated either way. Definitely, um, we're just not that powerful, Matt. <laughs> 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 this system will come whether we support it or not but I, I firmly believe that there is a difference in the rollout of this uh having full industry support as opposed to not and you know um by I guess withdrawing our support we are a bit more freer in speaking about some of the issues that have become apparent during the process so yep um it, it's likely to go ahead I mean going back to that point about you know, other organize, other industry groups, um, you know, and where they might stand on this position. If there were more industry groups, obviously that makes it harder. But, um, 
you know, we're we're pretty close to the the start date of of first uh, of January twenty twenty five. We know the jurisdictions are drafting legislation now to reflect this process. Um, yeah, so so it, it's probably happening regardless of what we say. But again, it's about trying to force an outcome or further discussion before sign off. And see what you what fast is what you accept, Matt. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. No, that's a fair I'm, point. I'm, I'm full of idioms this morning. That was a, yeah, that was must a good be, book I got for Christmas. You must be, yeah, you <laughs> must be um, very sharp in the morning, Andrew, not like normal. Um, with Rick, you mentioned that you had quite a lot of feedback from, from farmers and producers in support of the decision. Um, yeah, since the announcement, have you had anyone from government or the department reach out to want to kind of have a, have a discussion around what can be done to try and bring you guys back into the fold or or has there been a bit of radio silence um you know in terms of in terms of the reaction from 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 the regulators or the authorities yeah absolute radio silence um but i like i mean bearing in mind that this meeting uh the the task force meeting is scheduled for this friday so i'm sure i'm sure there will be discussions there and i think that's um a really good opportunity to to have those discussions Right. Oh, so that's that's interesting. I think it's it's an inter- it's been a sort of an interesting sort of couple of years on that EAD thing. To me, it just seems like that sort of three years, like knowing how governments work and especially IT projects with any connection to government, three years doesn't seem to be all that long, especially when you've got all the states. But so I guess my takeaway from this part of the conversation is get get it right, get it right first time. Uh, the quote for the tagline for the podcast will Joe Hall says get rid of the federation um, <laughs> and yeah. and mm-hmm. and yeah I think that's it's, it's, it's probably not that's probably not a bad idea get exactly. rid of federation yeah Bring, don't think it don't think it's going to be easy to done though is it no no it's not I really thought you know um you know dealing in the the national policy space i guess we deal with federation more than you know everyday person and joe public um if anything was going to bring that on i think covid highlighted to everybody how how federation isn't a great system when you had different states letting different people in or not letting people in or or whatever so um it was probably our opportunity and there was literally no talk of it then so i, I don't think it's going to be a thing mm. Hopefully, one day, one day, we we'll bring back bring back the old ways, bring <laughs> back the king. Uh, we've spoken a bit about the ID and, and we've mentioned biosecurity, but I wouldn't mind moving across and touch. And we also kind of mentioned briefly the, the biosecurity levy or the tax. Um, uh, what's the what's the stance which, with what, what, just what, on? We'll talk about that fairly briefly because we did talk with Colin about it. Yep. We did talk with David about it, and we've got a lot mm-hmm. to talk about in will process them domestically. Mm-hmm. Yep. But what, what's your view on the levy? Uh, we are firmly opposed and have been opposed since it was announced uh, at the last federal budget. We were blindsided by this. Um, I think, Andrew, you might have said on, on Twitter that um, the minister had hinted at it. I th- um, and, well, I had missed that completely. Um, so we were shocked. We We think this is really poor policy um you know again beneficiaries pay biosecurity being everybody's responsibility 
agree with all of those, but there needs to be that acknowledgement that we're not the only beneficiaries. Um, the, the general public do benefit out of a, a thriving ag sector as well. And I think also the complete lack of acknowledgement of the investment that producers or the ag sector already commit to biosecurity has, you know, not gone down well. Um, you know, at a federal, state and private level, private investment level, uh, producers are contributing as, as 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 a sheep producer, yeah, you'd pay the levy on effectively on the meat you sell, mm-hmm. and also the wool you sell. So yes. two two separate levies. What would the levy on like as a rough? What would the levy be on a sheep? Like wool, like would it be a couple of dollars? No, oh uh, wool. So the wool levy is one and a half percent. So you know, if you round that up, uh, it's currently one and a half percent because that's probably a good good point to raise in a minute too. Um. So you're not looking at a huge amount, but one and a half percent is one of the highest levies in ag. Mm. So we're concerned that wool, wool growers will be paying a disproportionate level. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking, like, if devil's avocado here, mm-hmm. if you had uh, a levy that was, was more expensive, yeah. So let's say your levy was three dollars per sheep across wool and sheep meat. And then you got rid of VID tags and the cost of that and the system that was involved in that. And then you put the money into um, on border protection. You wouldn't have to have the EID tags because you'd have a solid border. Maybe that system was perfect. The border, the, yeah, well, it's probably not relevant to the sheep side of the equation, but with lumpy skin. Lumpy skin disease is a, is one that could come in irrespective of the border protection. Uh, we're not here, it, if, we, if we want to talk about cattle, we'll get Cattle Australia on. We're here to talk about wool. <laughs> yeah, but biosecurity is everyone's responsibility. responsibility. Oh, good segue, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> but something just to um, why I guess we're equal, like we're strongly opposed to the biosecurity protection tax is that the wool industry is relatively unique in the fact that I think we're the only uh, commodity that votes every three years to set the level of levy that goes towards research, research, development and marketing. So the proposed introduction date of the biosecurity protection levy or tax is 1st of July this year. Probably a month later, all levy payers, wool levy payers, will be receiving a wool poll voter information kit asking them to decide how much uh, levy they want to pay for those other activities. And we think that's an unfair proposition to put wool growers in. I mean, they probably won't make the distinction that one is for biosecurity and one is for these other research development and marketing activities all they will see is that more money more money coming off their wool check and um it could potentially jeopardize the the level of uh levy that's being paid into those um r&d and m activities i suppose it'd be really interesting i don't know if anyone's done this would be to work out who is paying the most i know you've said that wool you're paying the most levies in terms of with the sheep levy you're paying the, obviously the AWI levy. You're then paying the wool levy on biosecurity. Uh, but then you got like if you're a South Australian farmer, it, I know it's opt out, but you then got your livestock SA levy on top of that as well. Yep. So 
it starts to add up to quite a lot of costs. I know it's a lot of those, like obviously the Livestock AC does a lot of work, AWI does a lot of work, but it still comes at the bottom of the line. You start to look at your bill, your ins and outs at the end of a year, it adds up. And, and that's the problem. Like that's one of our arguments is that with the biosecurity protection tax is that that lack of acknowledgement about what is already being contributed by by producers. Like in New South Wales, you've got LLS, uh, local land services. And mm. I think that was, um, oh, I don't want to quote the figure because I'm sure I'll get it wrong, but was it 40? Oh, no, I found the figure. It was actually 46 million uh, contributed in LLS rates, so by landholders for biosecurity activities um, in um uh, last year, I think it was. So in, in 2022. So there's that at the state level. In WA, they have another uh, sheep and goat fund. Uh, I think it's 17 cents per, per animal that's sold. So it does really add up. Mm. Um, and, you know, what, and I'm sure your other guests that have spoken about this, Colin, um, in particular has spoken about is, you know, no one's, talking about the risk creators here. I think there is pretty good industry consensus around the need for the imposition of a container levy, um, which government has kept saying, oh, that's really complex. It's really hard to do. Well, I guess this is too. I, I don't know that the government really thought that this, I, I think they thought it was going to be much easier to do than than what it was. Because as as we keep hearing, oh, we're only trying to generate 50 million here. Um, I think it is per year. So um, that's fine uh, if, if you want to talk about low figures, but it's the principle of it. Because the other thing that really um, annoyed wool producers about this is that there is the biosecurity statement, and that is supported by both industry and government. Uh, wool producers certainly supported it when it came out. And in that statement, it clearly articulates and defines each stakeholder's roles and responsibility in, in the biosecurity continuum. And obviously the federal government, one of their standalone, if not their only standalone responsibility is to fund the regulatory function of the biosecurity system. And what this tax is proposing will happen is that it will be producers that will be funding that regulatory mechanism because we know that the department's finances aren't great. So um, it goes against those principles that they'd already signed off on and, and producers shouldn't have to pay for that either. That's not our job. Hmm. Right. Well, we've got more, um, more, more money, more bills. Yep. So we, we mentioned. Let's, um, let's, get, let's get into some good news. Yeah, domestic processing. Keep, 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 keep the good news until the end. Yep. So yeah. you, you, uh, what producers applied for funding from the government uh, for to do a project into onshore processing of wool? And to do two reports, phase one, phase two. Phase two came out yesterday, 4 p.m. Yes. Um, Give us a summary. Okay. So, um, well, you've summarized it fairly well. We we uh, applied for some funding. Any, anyone would think I was a professional at this <laughs> podcast, the mark. It's all Kristen DePros teaching us. So we did apply for some funding through the Agricultural Trade and Market Access Cooperative Program, uh, ATMAC for short, uh, for phase one, which was looking, it was basically a feasibility study, not just for domestic processing, it was 
domestic and diversified processing. We're in the situation with the Australian wool industry where we export 98% of our raw product um, to uh, and 80% of that goes to a single market. So, yep, China. Um, yep and, and we have great relationships with China um, and they are just as committed to the wool industry as what the Australian wool growers are, but it is... You know, it's an opportunity to look at expanding uh, trade patterns and and complementary to existing systems. So the first phase was, is domestic processing a goer? Like we used to have moderate um, domestic processing up until sort of the late 90s when everything was offshore due to cheaper labour costs and uh, energy costs and things like that. Well, the world's changed since then a bit, and, and we're seeing, um, particularly in China, those those costs are catching up. Um, we also saw during COVID uh, about 50% of the value of the wool market dropped off in the first six months of 2020, um, and we really felt exposed then. Uh, there was a couple of other issues that we thought, well, we probably need to have a bit more sovereign capacity capability here so could we do it domestically and not only domestically is there a way to you know shake up the 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 current global wool supply chain and phase one found yes so uh for domestic processing it was feasible because the broadly speaking um the higher weight and energy costs can be offset in freight efficiencies um because, look, if you're talking about raw wool and say the yield is 70%, which is, is pretty good, that's still 30% of dirt that we're exporting in, in each bale. Mm. So there, there's an efficiency there. The other big thing that we found was that, jumping back to biosecurity because it is so important, if we were to have an incursion of a serious disease such as foot and mouth disease, our greasy or raw wool exports shut down overnight. We saw with our counterparts in South Africa, they had uh, kind of two recent outbreaks, one in 2019. They were shut out of the market for quite a while um, and and then learned through that process that they needed to do a, a few things to sort of mitigate those risks, such as heating wool stores to try and deactivate the virus. They did all of that and then come 2022, they had another incursion and they were shut out for eight months. So... That's um that's a huge risk, and as Australia provides eighty percent of the world's apparel wool, um if if Australia was to have a serious incursion of foot and mouth disease, it's it's the global apparel wool supply chain that is in jeopardy as well. <clears throat> so when we talk about domestic processing, another benefit is that um you know in in an EAD outbreak, you can export a fiber as opposed to an animal byproduct, which is mm. basically talking about so what the first phase in terms of diversified markets they um did some analysis at at some countries um that already had you know i guess reasonable textile industries that perhaps weren't utilizing wool as much and they they found that um india vietnam and bangladesh were quite promising so phase two so that so that was great we had that those answers we then reapplied under ATMAC for phase two, which was to looking at, okay, now that we know that it is feasible to um, process wool in Australia, um, 
how would we do it? What's the business case look like? Uh, where would we do it? And the second stream of that phase two was to do develop roadmaps into those three countries about, okay, it's great that we've identified that there's potential in these markets, or uh, but how do we do it? So, um, yeah, that, that was released uh, yesterday. And I think uh, we were able to engage Deloitte Access Economics to do both phases of those works, and they, they have done a great job. Um, it is pretty hot off the press. We, we um, don't have the roadmaps publicly available yet. They will be available by this Friday uh, on our website. But um, there's a lot of work that's gone into that. And um, yeah, I look forward to the next phase of, of trying to make those opportunities come to fruition. Was there any, with, with regards to the domestic side, was there any, was, this is just an exploratory thing as a, as a preliminary. It's, there's no kind of timeline or this is what needs to be done, this is what we could expect, how long it would take if we were to go down a pathway for, for some level of domestic processing? Yeah, look, the, the business case has the timelines built in and, and sort of some steps as well. And um, I think as an industry, part of this project, we established a, a project uh, working group, which is industry stakeholders. They have been an invaluable source of information and guidance throughout this process to Deloitte because these are the guys that are working in it at the moment, the exporters, uh, you know, the processes that we have in Australia. We've got three wool processes in Australia currently. Um, so they've been really helpful. So the the next step is that we we will come together to consider this the domestic report um collectively and what actions we need to do, both government and industry involvement going forward. So I mean, uh that's that's um you know foreshadowed to happen in the coming weeks. But was there was there kind of just an approximate you know, range in numbers of years, if if it was to go down that pathway, did they say, you know, it's, is it a five-year project, a, a 10-year project or some kind of rough number so people can get their head around what, what you'd be looking at before we could get some kind of viable domestic market happening? Yeah, look, probably quicker than that. And and when we're talking about domestic processing, we're probably, because there's dry processing and wet processing, we're probably looking at wet um, processes processing for the worsted system at the moment and the suitings and stuff so um would that be expansion of current uh like the time frames would depend on what you do a new completely new establishment is it an expansion of existing businesses that type of thing but it, we're talking you know we're I, I don't want to say the time because i can't actually remember but i know it wasn't that long oh. it, it, we could have it within a couple of years. That's yeah, something. so le- we'd say in less than five years, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. The main, um, thing, the main thing is investment, getting money and getting permission, environmental That's coverage. it, and all of that has been looked at. Obviously, there's no point doing this. It's mm. not going to meet, um, you know, domestic laws. And, and, you know, they did multi-criteria analysis of location. So, obviously, um, they needed sheep populations, they needed energy sources, they needed port access, that type of thing. So, so Melbourne. Got, yeah, um, Metropolitan Victoria came up very well, um, as did uh, Metropolitan South Australia. So, but they did look in locations like Western New South Wales, Southern New South Wales, um, where th- those types of, of, of areas. So we need to... Um, sit down, have a bit of a 
collective think as an industry about how to best action this because it is all in the report. Um, but obviously capital is going to be key. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a number of options that could be considered both private and, and government, I guess. So, I mean, that what we're talking about here that should um, interest the government is the alignment with a number of government policies, such as job creation and um, sovereign capability, that type of thing. Could the wool industry, I'm talking about sort of growers, form a cooperative to do it? it because it then you get a tax deduction as well, because it would be free from tax, actually. Yeah, look, look, there's 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 options like that, but we are talking significant um, capital requirements. Yeah, farmers make a shit ton of money. You've had some good years. <laughs> We're not talking about grain Am farmers, Andrew. Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, and like if if every farm, every grain farmer just didn't get a land cruiser this and year, just put it put it put, put that land cruiser fee, we'd, we'd have enough money. Didn't we just discuss the fact that you know I, 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 how I, much I, people mate we're going to be taxed anyway yeah, I, was, I was just trying to just reiterate the point i'll wake up in the morning and work out who i'm going to annoy and was, <laughs> <laughs> um, usually usually it starts with me and then it progresses from so, there but i think it's like i, I like i think everyone knows that i'm a scottish socialist and cooperatives were invented in scotland and it's uh sometimes a good opportunity to you know, take ownership of a supply chain if it's done properly, anyway. But no, I think it, domestic processing is is an interesting concept. Like, I just sort of there's a lot of there was a lot of talk in grains about more domestic processing, and still the biggest domestic output for grains or potential I see is sheep. Just more feeding of sheep, yeah. and you don't you don't need to be fancy about it. But with wool, it's obviously you need that infrastructure to to do that. It's an interesting report, though. I've I've glanced. I haven't. Look, I'll be honest. The I think it was a hundred pages, and I only read ninety eight of them. So I just need to uh, go back and read the rest of the appendix. Um, but no. So you're pretty positive that there's an opportunity there. Yeah, definitely. Um, this has been a really enjoyable piece of work to be involved with. Um, it's a big project for wool producers. Yeah, and a big bit of funding. So, yeah, it was, and you know, um. I feel obliged to thank the government, successive governments for that funding and the opportunity. But we think that, you know, there was, when we first started looking at, at considering investigating this, um, we, we've subsequently had a number of events, whether it was COVID, whether it was geopolitical tensions, mm. um, increased biosecurity threats, like it, it's kind of aligned. And, and we were saying that, you know, five years earlier, we wouldn't have considered look investigating it because... Yeah. Um, Everything was fine. But Exactly. and But we started hearing from growers like, why don't we do more processing here? It, it's crazy that we don't. Um, and, you know, that's a really valid question. And that was initially what we wanted to absolutely independently rule in and out, in or out. Is it possible? Because mm. there's no point going cap in hand to the government saying, well, we need a heap of money to set up a domestic wool processing plant only for it to fail in five years' time. So yeah. we were certain that it was viable. And that's what could have happened. The report could have come out and said, no, send it to China. But it's not. And so that was like talking to the consultants when we first engaged it. We said, we have absolutely no predetermined outcome here. 
do we like the idea? Does it make everybody feel good about the idea of processing what we grow? Yeah, of course we do, but that's not what we're here. To, that's not what we've engaged to do. We want you to independent. Yeah. yeah. Joe, Joe, we we spoke about that the processing side and the importance to get you know a bit more diversity across, whether it's other other sites overseas, um, like India or Vietnam or, or, or those areas, Bangladesh. Uh, you know, versus China. So there's one side, um, but I just want to focus a little bit on the consumer end as well. And uh, as an industry, do you think we're doing enough? Like Andrew and I are sitting in our Merino polos Merino. as we speak, yep. and we're we're strong advocates for wearing wool, natural um, fibres. Yep. Uh, yeah. So are we doing enough as an industry to get people into wool product and, and wearing wool, or, or could we do more there as well? Look, I think um, it's an interest, interesting question. I'm not a marketer at all. Would I like to see more wool being consumed? 100%. I think we are now currently sitting at about 1% of the global apparel mm. market. That's that's not great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this circular economy push um, happening, which wool ticks that. Um, there's the you know, the more conscious consumer post-COVID buy, buy once, buy well type thing will again ticks that. We're talking about sustainable sustainability and eco-credentials. Again, wool is ticking all of those boxes. So there is no reason why we shouldn't see an increase in, in wool consumption, but for some reason we're not. Um, and I... I I would like to see that change. I think AWI did an amazing ad or, sorry, campaign where wool, not fossil fuels. Mm. Mm. I think it was 2022. And it's honestly the best thing that I've seen um, in terms of a marketing campaign. And that's, I think, you know, wool has always been promoted as a luxury fibre and there's reasons behind that. Again, I'm not a marketer, but... um, you know, my understanding is that the, that luxury end is a bit more immune to, you know, um, cost of living pressures. If, if you're really going to the target the the top end of of consumers, but that's why well, that's why that's, that's why, that's why, Andrew, that's why, Andrew, that's why we were, you know, yeah, exactly. to demonstrate the luxury end and <laughs> spending our huge analyst salaries on. But the the products we get are, are, are good value for money, and we don't. Well, they're very good value for money because we don't pay for them, but the. <laughs> But if you take it back, regardless of whether you pay you pay for that or not, like wool, um, we just shells for big wool. <laughs> Good, someone has to be. Um, mm-hmm. But you, you know the cost per wear of wool because it's so durable. Um, it, it is an investment, and that again going back to the credentials of wool and whether it's the green credentials or just the, um, you know the fire. For the comfort, the the wear the wearing comfort is exceptional. Do, do, do you know? Do you know? Do you know who's doing the best job for wool for everyday dual blogs? Uniqlo. Uni- oh, yeah, 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 Uniqlo yeah. have such good merino products for a for for as the same price as man made fibers in many cases, and they're fantastic. Size is a little bit off. They're a bit sort of Japanese sizey. so you've got to, Matt, you'd have to go 4X. Triple uh, extra large, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it's good quality, and it's affordable, and I think that's the difference. Like wool, I wear a lot of wool, but it's always been expensive. And, and I, that, 
problem. Yeah, it's always been pitched at that luxury. And 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 I will say, like, that's a great point. Uniqlo um making it more accessible and affordable and moving away from the luxury and the um uh the active wear space, mm-hmm. wool is really starting to mm. there. I think that's an amazing opportunity for wool as well. But it's but I also think even though it's more expensive, you're right about the durability. You think of like a pair of R and Williams. Like mm-hmm. I think they are the cheap. I bought I got two pairs of them. I bought a pair in 2010 that I'm still wearing. And whilst they were expensive at the time, mm. if I was to buy other shoes, I would replace them 10, 15 times by now. And so there is a certain sort of probably an advantage from b- being middle. Are we middle class, Matt? I don't know. Yeah, I, I would say working class, Andrew. Working class, um, but we are. But we're but, happy. But, but, we're but, happy but, to but, all... but just be able to spend the money to actually pay up front for something that is expensive that will last you a long time. Not everyone has that opportunity. No, and we're not adverse to an RM Williams sponsorship either. On egg watches, are we, Andrew? No. Uh, so if Twiggy's listening to this one, uh, I'm a size nine wide, <laughs> and uh, I would like a pair of black ones, not the uh, chestnut that I've already got, or suede. I wouldn't mind the suede ones as well. So if you're listening to this one, uh, yeah, we will be shells for we'll be shells for mining. <laughs> Must be more money in that than agriculture. Anyway. There are those. There are those. There are those shoes that are made from wool as well. There's a few um, brands of woolen shoes. I've, I've, got, I've, got, be... I've got a pair of woolen runners. Have you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet. Yep. I don't. I don't run, but I'm sure I could if I wanted to. Uh, I think we're getting to the silly stage of the podcast, Matt. That's usually a sign. It's usually a sign to 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 wrap it up. Our sort of attention deficit disorders are coming into play, and uh, it's it's probably time to wrap up. But I think it was really interesting, Joe. I think it's uh, it's shown sort of an element of leadership and in, in stepping forward and saying that you've pulled support. But also, I think it's a lot of leadership in that sort of domestic processing and and showing that so i think it's interesting to see how it how it develops and we look forward to interviewing the first ceo of whoever the company is that increases the uh domestic processing in 2027 excellent um no well thank you both for your time and the opportunity i've um enjoyed it i was going to say surprisingly enjoyed it i didn't know what to expect but i have enjoyed it do you know do you know how many people say that they say oh you know you guys are a pair of Certain words, uh, these are too unpredictable. <laughs> Usually, as soon as we stop the tape, they say, Oh, that was a lot of fun. I wasn't expecting that. that. It's nice that Joe got it in while we're still recording, just so any potential future guests don't need to be scared of us, do they, Joe? No, not at all. Um, no, it was, uh, it was, it was pleasant, pleasant. <laughs> that's okay. That's we'll, put, we'll put that on we'll, as a testimonial. A testimonial. Agwatch's podcast, pleasant. Pleasant. Pleasant experience, yeah. (laughs) Right up. Right, we better go and we'll get this up this morning. Sounds good. Thanks Thanks for coming on, Joe. See you when you got nothing on. No worries.